Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so we can never hear enough of the word of Christ. And so while verses one through five were read already for us, we're gonna be looking at uh, one through 10. So I'm gonna read six through 10 for us. It says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified at the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning rejoicing and thankful uh, for what you have done and for what you have accomplished for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you and thank you for the salvation that is ours in Christ. We thank you that in Christ we have been made righteous, we are justified, we are being sanctified, and Father, we are above all things forgiven and reconciled unto you. And so we give you great thanks and praise this morning. And Lord, we pray that as your word is proclaimed this morning that Christ would be exalted in our midst, and as Christ is exalted, may you be glorified, and may we, your people, be encouraged and edified through your word, we pray. Father, do guard my mouth, and I might say only that which is edifying for us, so that in all things you may be glorified in Christ's name, amen. Now, as we come to Isaiah chapter 11, there there really is uh, very little suspense in this text, especially given uh, the Advent season in which we find ourselves, right? This is a prophecy, Isaiah 11, concerning the coming Messiah, right? A prophecy concerning God's chosen servant who will accomplish all of his will, It is a prophecy that we know is fulfilled in the coming of Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the king of Isaiah chapter 11. However, to fully appreciate, understand, and I would argue to apply uh, this passage and this prophecy this morning, it's important that we see this text against the backdrop, not only of Judah's failure, but more importantly, uh, in the failure of her kings, which is exemplified, at least here contextually in the first 12 chapters, in Ahaz. Last week, as Darren was preaching from Isaiah chapter 9, he touched on the sinfulness of Judah. He spoke of their syncretism in their worship, their failure to show justice and mercy. He (coughs) spoke of their altogether unrighteous actions. What's interesting, though, is even in the midst of their rebellion, even in the midst of their great sinfulness, the people of Judah are still coming to the temple and offering sacrifices to the Lord. And really, this this speaks to the the truly depraved way that they view God. They've come to a place where where they no longer see any distinction between the living God and the God of the nations. They, They have come to a place where they think that God will be happy so long as the temple is busy. Right? So long as sacrifices are continually brought to the temple, God will turn a blind eye to all their other actions and he will be pleased with these sacrifices. But what we find, especially in the very first chapter of Isaiah, is that God takes absolutely no delight in their sacrifices. He's tired of their offerings. He's weary with their actions. He's weary with them coming to the temple. 
So great is their rebellion that in chapter one, Isaiah likens the people of Judah to Sodom and Gomorrah, the very pinnacle of Old Testament wickedness and rebellion. Now, as is often the case, the sin of the people is uniquely represented and exemplified in their king, and in this case, it's their king Ahaz. And at least in this, in this regard, as far as wickedness goes, Ahaz does not disappoint for us. Right, the wickedness of Ahaz is recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. There we read, in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, <clears throat> Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Ahaz is wicked. He is the pinnacle of wickedness. He is the pinnacle of unrighteousness. His kingdom, his, his rule is characterized by unrighteousness. He even burned his own son as an offering. Justice and mercy are nowhere to be found in his kingdom, and it is continually marked by war. In fact, he's even in the midst or on the very precipice of war against the northern kingdom Israel and Syria, as Darren mentioned last week. Now, in the immediate context <coughs> excuse me, of Isaiah chapter 1 through 12, the focus is on Ahaz's refusal to trust in the Lord. As Darren mentioned last week, northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria are coming together against Judah and the southern kingdom. And instead of looking to the Lord, instead of trusting in the Lord, instead of relying upon the Lord, where does Ahaz turn his attention? He turns his attention to Assyria, a pagan nation, a pagan people. And he looks to Assyria to deliver him, even going so far as sending Assyria all the gold and the silver that was in the temple as payment for protection. In chapter seven, Isaiah is sent to confront Ahaz, giving the king an opportunity to turn from his wickedness, to turn to the Lord, to trust in God. Ahaz, or God even says through Isaiah, look, ask of a sign, whatever it is, ask of a sign and I will give you that sign. And yet Ahaz is determined not to trust God. He's determined to trust in Assyria to deliver him. And so in this kind of false humility, he says, who am I to put the Lord to the test? I'm not gonna ask for a sign. And so he continues in his wickedness, he continues in his rebellion, he continues to lead the people in this direction. And this really is the social and religious context in which this prophecy is given to the people. It's a time of great rebellion and wickedness, a time when their king is failing to lead the people in justice and righteousness and mercy, a time that is not marked by, uh, by peace, but a time that is marked by the constant threat of war. Now, not only is this prophecy, does it come within the context of Israel's rebellion and this great wickedness, within the context of chapters 1 through 12, this comes as the third uh, messianic prophecy that we've encountered so far in Isaiah chapters 1 through 12. Now, we can rightly understand, I think, the first 12 chapters of Isaiah as an introduction to the book as a whole. And, and as such, this prophecy here in 11 comes kind of as the, the pinnacle of the two previous messianic prophecies that we've read. So in chapter seven, this that we have the first messianic prophecy, the prophecy concerning the coming Messiah, where a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. This prophecy is then further clarified in Isaiah chapter nine, where Darren preached from last week, 
where we're told that a child is born to us, a, a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counsel, Almighty God, and the Prince of Peace. Of the, of the reign of his government, there shall be no end, we're told, and he shall sit on the throne of David. And these two prophecies, these two promises, chapter 7 and chapter 9, kind of reach full flower here in chapter 11 with the promise of a king who, unlike Ahaz, will delight in the Lord and will faithfully lead God's people with justice, righteousness, and peace. This is the setting and the situation of this text. A time of great sin, a time of great rebellion, a time when God's people seem all but hopeless, and a time when God is intertwining the certainty of judgment with the promise of future salvation. Now, as we work our way through this text, there's two questions that I want to set before us, two two questions that I kind of want to have before us as we work through this text together, and those are the questions of why and how. Why? Why is this prophecy given? And given the the socio-religious context, given the rebellion of God's people, given their abject wickedness and failure, given the fact that they have completely turned from him and are living like the nations who he dispossessed from the land, why does this promise come? Why does God speak this word of assurance of future salvation? And then the second question is how? How are we... Who, who stand here on the, on the opposite side of this text, really in, in, in the fulfillment of this text, how are we to apply this text to our lives today, this, this promise of a king who will rule in righteousness and justice and peace? So those are two questions I want to have before us as we, we enter into this passage together. So let's, let's walk through this text together. So as we begin this passage, one of the first things we notice here, one of the first things we see is the humble unexpected, and we could say even divine origin of this coming king. Look at verse one with me. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, as we read verse one, we should find that a little unusual, uh, the way that Isaiah is referring to this coming king, because we, again, who stand on this side of the fulfillment, knowing that it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we have become very comfortable with referring to Jesus as the offspring of David. In fact, we, we, we've become very comfortable continually connecting Jesus with Davidic promises and with the Davidic king. Uh, and, and we're right for doing this, right? If we think of Matthew chapter one and his genealogy, Matthew deliberately connects Jesus to Abraham and to David. Paul in, excuse me, in 2 Timothy chapter two, verse eight, directly refers to Jesus as the offspring of David. And this is not to mention the almost countless times that David is mentioned in the New Testament in connection with the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And yet here in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, he's not referred to as the offspring of David. He's referred to as a shoot or a branch that's coming out of the stump of Jesse. In fact, this is the only time that this is used, the only time he's referred to in this way. And we should ask ourselves, why is it that Isaiah is referring to him as coming as the shoot or the branch from the stump of Jesse? Now, the the stump, the reason he mentions stump is because the stump refers to the judgment that's come upon God's people such that like a tree, he has hewn them down. 
right? And, and it's really fitting within the context. If we jump back just one chapter, chapter 10, the last two verses, 33 and 34, where God is speaking about his judgment upon Assyria, he says, behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great and height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So in chapter 10, he's referring to the destruction of Assyria, his judgment on Assyria as a, as a lumberjack going out to cut down trees, to lop off the bows, to bring what's high and mighty down low. And then Isaiah continues with that tree imagery, that stump imagery as he comes to the people of Israel, the people of Jacob. And the people of Jacob will also be judged by God. They shall be hewn down. But unlike Assyria, the judgment is not total. The, t- the judgment is not complete. Assyria has no, has no branch. It has no shoot coming out. But the stump of Jesse, which has been hewn down, will have life. Will have a shoot and a branch that will come out and will bear fruit, will bring forth life. In his commentary on this verse, um, John Calvin notes that the reference to Jesse is due to the fact that the line of David is so withered, it has lost all of its ancient renown, right? It speaks to the degrading effect of the continual and progressive wickedness of the kings of Judah. If we take it in this way, it reinforces the hopeless state of things, such that the promised king is not going to come through pomp and the power of human authority or the pomp and power of a royal king but rather only through the power of a living God. It is only God that can bring life out of this stump, this stump of Jesse. The king comes not when the tree is at its full height, but when it has been humbled and brought low, and all that is left is a withered stump. So unexpected is the coming of this king that in Isaiah 53, the Messiah is referred to as a root out of dry ground. Life coming up, where it's completely and utterly unexpected. The divine nature of this coming king is seen not only in his unexpected origin, one that only God can produce, but in his spirit-empowered life as well. Look at me at verses verses two through three. It says, "'And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, "'the spirit of wisdom and understanding, "'the spirit of counsel and might, "'the spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord, "'and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord.'" The need for the spirit of God to empower God's people to accomplish his will is well testified in the Old Testament. And if we, if we just think about examples that come to our mind, we can think of uh, Samson, who in his great might, when the spirit rushes upon him, is able to defeat uh, God's enemies. More specifically, in line with the kingship, we could think of Saul and David. And we could think about when David or when Saul is refused Uh, are removed as a king and the scriptures say that the spirit of God left him. In the very next verse, it says that the spirit of God rushed upon David such that David's ministry as king over God's people is one that only could be done in the power of the spirit moving in him and through him. What's happened though is that over time, due to rebellion and wickedness, the kings have a spirit which has very little of God in it at all. Rather, it's a spirit marked by rebellion and marked by wickedness. And yet there's this promise in Isaiah 11 of a king who will come and the spirit of God will rest upon him. 
The Spirit of God will empower this king to carry out the will of the Father, to rule as the Father calls him to rule, in understanding and wisdom, with counsel and with might, with knowledge and a fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Think how contrary this is to what the people see personified in Ahaz. Ahaz does not delight in the Lord. Ahaz is not filled with a spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might, and yet he lives in complete rebellion against the Lord. And so in the midst of this time when the king that they see is nothing like the king that they need, God promises a king who will come. One who will come from unexpected origin, humble origin, brought about by the power of God and empowered by the spirit of God to rule his people rightly to rule them in righteousness, to rule them in justice, to rule them in mercy. And that's exactly what we see as we move through these verses. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he says, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see, this is verse three again, or decide uh, disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The picture here that we're getting is of this king who will come and will rule as God has intended, who will lead God's people with righteousness, such that righteousness is what holds up his kingdom. Faithfulness is what supports his kingdom. He delights in the Lord. He advocates for the poor and the needy. If we think about um, the, the prophets and the accusations that they bring against the nation of Israel in the midst of their wickedness, one of the greatest accusations they bring against them is their failure to show justice. Their failure to care for the poor and the needy and the meek in their society. The very ones that God is calling them to minister to, the very ones that God is calling them to seek out, those are the ones that they take advantage of. Those are the ones that they trample over. Darren was talking about last week as they build house upon house upon house, the rich and the wealthy are padding their own wealth, they're building their own kingdoms at the expense of the poor and the needy and the meek in their midst. And so in the, in the midst of this, God is promising a king who will not further this wickedness, who will not further this rebellion, who will not further this injustice, but one who will rule in righteousness one who will judge in righteousness, one who cannot be bought or bribed or cajoled, but one whose delight is in honoring the Lord God and living in such a way to make his will and his way known. And the result of this, the result of this rule, the result of this righteousness, the result of this justice, the result of this mercy, this result of delighting in the fear of the Lord is seen in this, this uh, figurative imagery that we see in, chapter, in verses six through nine. What do we see in verses six through nine? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. What is this? This is a picture of the most vulnerable the most vulnerable and the most violent existing in peace together. The most vulnerable and the most violent existing in peace with one another. 
I don't know if you guys ever watch um, like the Animal Planet or the Animal Channel, whatever it is, probably Shark Week. A lot of, I figure here in the middle of the country, there's a lot of big shark fans. <laughs> but if you watch these shows, um, lions don't eat straw. Uh, they particularly like baby gazelles, uh, weak and weary buffaloes. And if you've ever watched where they eat these things, like, I, I, like I, it's, it, this sounds inappropriate, but you watch them eat it, it's terrifying. I don't know if you're like me. I sit there and go, what would it be like to be eaten alive by a lion? Conclusion, I think it would be horrible. I honestly, I don't know where you're at on that. I think it'd be the worst thing ever. But they don't eat straw. They devour meat ferociously. I, I, there's a good, you know, I realize that some of my analogies or, or descriptions, there's children here and they might miss it. So I, you, what just came to me is, um, uh, what's that zoo movie with Alex the lion? Madagascar. The second Madagascar, what happens to Alex? Any kids in here watch that movie? He almost eats a zebra friend, right? Why? Because lions don't eat straw. They eat zebras or zebras, as my daughter says, because she watches Peppa Pig. And yet in this text here, there's this promise where the most violent will, will mingle with the most vulnerable. Imagine if you were a parent and you saw your child playing over the hole of a, of a venomous snake. Would you leave your child there? Would you say, oh, it's going to be all right? No, in, in fear and in terror, you would go and you'd grab your child because your child's vulnerable, vulnerable and that snake is, is violent. And yet here, in, in the rule of this king, in the rule of this king, there is peace to the extent that the vulnerable and the violent are brought together. And why? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of the Lord, knowing God, knowing him, knowing him particularly through this king is so transformative that it shapes the earth, right? Knowing God through this king is so powerful and so transformative, it changes the very fabric of reality. <laughs> How awesome is that? How impressive is that? And this is the promise that God is making to his people here in Isaiah 11. A king is coming who will change everything. All that you see will be no more. Where you see war, there will be peace. Where you see unrighteousness, righteousness will be established. Where you see injustice, justice and mercy shall reign. Why? Because of this king, this king who is coming, this king who God has promised. This is the prophecy of this text. This is the promise of this text. That's why Isaiah chapter 12 is Isaiah chapter 12. I love, I love Isaiah 12. I've committed Isaiah 12 to memory, but look at Isaiah 12 just really quickly in light of Isaiah 11. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to the Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. You will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord. For he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy. 
O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Why is Isaiah 12 this song of praise? Because Isaiah 11 is an amazing promise. That's why. And so we come back to those, those two questions. Why? 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 We, we don't ask why enough. Why? Why this here? I mean, we could almost say, how dare God put this here? Consider the rebellion of your people. Consider their wickedness. Consider their turning from you and rejecting you and abandoning you and living as people of the nations. Consider what they've done to your name. Consider what they've done to your glory. Consider what they're saying about who you are, God. So how dare God put, put this promise here? I've said this before, and I'll stand by it again. This, it's, never, it's never a good exercise to imagine yourself God. But if we did for a moment, and we had been putting up with these people for 1,000 years, rebellion after rebellion, wickedness after wickedness, would we write Isaiah 11? Probably not. Probably not. And yet, why does God, why is this here? And it's here for a very simple reason. Simple, if we could say simple. It's here because the faithlessness of Israel cannot undo the faithfulness of God. The faithful, faithlessness of his people cannot overcome and undo his faithfulness to his own promises. Isaiah 11 and seven and nine and 53 and, and 66 and 65, all these promises that we encounter, they're here because God is faithful. He is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his covenants. He is faithful to his promises and the faithlessness of his people is not going to stop him. You see, God made promises going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where he called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, Abram, a pagan, worshiping pagan gods, and God calls him to himself, and he says, Abram, I'm going to make of you a great name. I'm going to make of you a great nation, and in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And then God reiterates that promise in chapter 15 and again in chapter 17 and again in chapter 22 and God continues to unravel and unpack the fullness of his promise to Abraham that Abraham is gonna be a blessing to the whole entire world. And then if we fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter seven, God made a promise to David that David shall have a king that shall sit on the throne for all eternity, that he shall never lack a man on the throne, that a son will come and that, will, that son will build a house for God. And even though Israel has continued in unfaithfulness to the Lord, God is faithful to his promises. He is going to accomplish what he said he will do. He will bring a blessing to all nations, and that blessing is Christ. And the fact that his people are in abject rebellion is not going to stop God. In fact, we sit here right now celebrating Advent because God is faithful. And his faithfulness shapes our hopefulness even right now. I mean, what are we doing in Advent? What is the purpose of this time? Well, in one sense, we are looking back, right? We are looking back to God coming 
in human flesh, the incarnation, Christ Jesus, the fulfillment of all God's promises, coming and tabernacling, tabernacling, that's a word, dwelling among us. And so we look back and in a sense, we, 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 we feel, we embrace, we sympathize with the expectation of God's people as they longed for the coming of the Messiah. But that's only half of what we're doing, right? What's the other half? We're looking forward, are we not? We're looking forward in eager expectation for Christ's return, that Christ will come back and he will finish, bring to completion what he started in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, what Paul calls the redemption of our bodies. And why, why can we sit here hopeful that that day is coming? Why can we sit here with full assurance knowing that Christ is coming back? Why? Because God is faithful. And here's the beautiful thing. Here's, here's the shocker. Your unfaithfulness and my unfaithfulness cannot derail God's faithfulness. It cannot derail his purposes and his plans. Oh, how great is the God we serve that he is not contingent upon us. Oh, how great is the God we worship. He's not dependent upon you. He's not dependent upon me. He rests on his own glory. He rests on his own name. He rests on his own power. He rests on his own majesty. He rests on his own faithfulness. Because we will be unfaithful. Spoiler alert. <laughs> You're going to be unfaithful. I'm going to be unfaithful. You to a greater degree, me to a lesser degree. That's the most horrible thing anybody could say, right? And that's what's going to end up in the Instagram clip or whatever it is. <laughs> I'm joking. We're all going to be unfaithful. And yet, that's not going to stop God. That's not going to stop him. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, how majestic. Oh, how glorious is our God. The words of, of Paul, this, this creed, this this. This ancient creed of the early church should, should always be on our lips from 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, that is our God. Rejoice that our God is faithful, faithful to his word, faithful to his promises, faithful to his covenants that he has entered into with his people so we can stand here and know and rest in his faithfulness. Not in our own. If I'm trying to rest in my own faithfulness, that, that is not rest. That is anxiety out the wazoo, <laughs> right? That, 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 is, that, is, that is pressure, that is that is. Anxiety, that, that is frustration, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't contain. I wouldn't make it a day. I'd crumble to pieces. But all anxiety, all fear, all worry, all trepidation is overcome by God's faithfulness to himself. Rejoice in that. Rejoice that our God is faithful to himself. 
And we are the beneficiaries of his faithfulness to himself. So that's why. Second question uh, for the next 30 minutes is how. <laughs> I see the, the worship people out anxiously outside. I'll finish when I want to finish. Uh, excuse me. Uh, how? How do we apply this? Now, that might seem like a, an obvious question that we need to ask, but it's an interesting question to ask. It's an interesting question to ask because this is not a prophecy, a future prophecy given to us, right? This is a, this is a, a promise and a prophecy that we are actually living in, right? Uh, the, the king of Isaiah 11 has come. Christ has come. Now, my guess is, is that when we read this, more often than not, what we do is we take it and we, and we push it into the future. We, we push it into the future and we think, man, I, I can't wait for this day when the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. I can't wait for this time of peace. I, I want this prophesied, promised time of peace. This, this thing right here, this world right here, this holy mountain where the world is filled with the knowledge of God, where peace reigns. I, I want this. I look forward to this. And I'm, I'm longing for this. But I would argue and I would, I would press you and I would encourage you to pull that back out of the future and bring it into the present, because the reality is we live under the rule of this king. Jesus is the king of Isaiah 11. He is our king. So what does that mean for us? If we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and Christ is our king, what does that mean for us? It means that the things that are spoken of here are now present realities for us. That we are meant to live out. And I think Paul picks up on this in the New Testament. Consider what he says to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal known through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. What is the kingdom of God marked by? What is it marked by in Isaiah chapter 11? Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. It's marked by righteousness. It's characterized by righteousness. And who are we in Christ Jesus? We are the righteousness of God. We have been transformed. The old has passed away. The new has come. We have been reconciled to God. We are in Christ, the righteousness of God. Righteousness is our belt now. Righteousness is what holds our pants up. It's what sustains us and supports us. Not our own righteousness, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So transformative is the coming of Christ that has transformed those who are unrighteous to those who are now in Christ righteous. What else has Jesus done? What else has he accomplished in his church and for his church? Well, let's consider what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. And these are on the screen, right? Because they're, they're big passages. Good, follow along. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Listen, listen to how many times this is mentioned. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Seven times, seven times peace is either directly or indirectly mentioned. Either positively, he's brought peace or negatively, he's killed the hostility. What has God done in the church? He has made peace. People who were once at odds with one another, separated from one another, like a lion and a lamb, like a wolf and a lamb, like a child and an adder are now brought together in Christ. So what reigns in the church? Peace. We are a people of peace because we have a king who has accomplished peace. We are a people of righteousness because we have a king who is him very self, righteousness. And we are a people who are called to be a people of justice and mercy and compassion and kindness, just as our king is called to be, or our king is a king of justice and mercy and compassion and kindness. So this, I would argue, church, is not some far-off reality. It is what we are called to today. This is what we are called to be now. People who proclaim that the king of Isaiah 11 has come and he has brought righteousness and justice and mercy and peace. And you wanna see it? You see it in his people. We are to make known the righteousness of our king. We are to make known the justice of our king. We are to make known the mercy of our king. We are to make known the peace of our king. We are to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven with Christ at our head. And in doing so, what do we do? We cover the earth with the knowledge of the Lord God. Because in verse 10, what does it say in verse 10? It says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, of him the nations shall inquire. Christ has established righteousness, justice, mercy, and peace, and he has done it through his people, the church and then we stand and we declare the greatness and the glory of the root of Jesse, the branch that is bearing fruit, making known that righteousness, justice, mercy, and peace are real and true in the kingdom of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for what you and you alone have accomplished, for what you and you alone could do overcoming evil, overcoming wickedness, overcoming rebellion, overcoming sin, and establishing in your King Jesus righteousness and justice and mercy and peace. Father, I pray that you would empower us with the very same spirit that rested upon Christ to live out this reality, to be ambassadors of our King, to make known the righteousness, the justice, the mercy, and the peace of King Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand with us as we respond with praise.
all poor 